0: Melissa Catanuti was a successful 35-year-old pediatrician specializing in infectious diseases. Her body was found strangled and on fire in her upscale Philadelphia home. Police were baffled since Melissa had no known enemies and was loved by everyone at her work. Join me as I walk you through the life and death of Melissa Catanuti. This is Episode 5 of Modern Murders. I'm your host, Ariel. I'm proud to announce that I am on Spotify and Google Podcasts. So if you're listening on either of those, please like, subscribe, and give me a review as well. Also, share me any ideas that you have about the podcast or any ways that I can improve it because I am doing this solo and I really need the feedback so that I make your experience better. I'm also thinking about doing sponsorships. So also, let me know. What kind of sponsorships you would like to listen to? Do you like makeup? Do you want something funny? Do you want something a little bit more specific? I don't know. And I want to make sure that when you're listening to this episode that you feel like it's for you. So please share your thoughts and ideas with me. You can email me at modernmurders at yahoo.com or you can follow me on Instagram. Just type in modernmurders and I'll show up. All right. So let's get into this show. This is going to take us to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and it's going to take us a little bit all over the world, but um, we're going to start out in Thailand and eventually end up in Pennsylvania. So Melissa Katanuti was born in Thailand in 1978, and she was raised there by her native Thai father and her Belgian mother. Her father is a civil engineer consultant in Bangkok, and he trained horses on the side. So. Melissa grew up interacting with some of the most stubborn and hardest-to-train animals in her life. Her father later went on to start a program called Old 99, which gives disabled children the opportunity to ride and interact with horses. I think that training horses requires dedication and patience, which is something that will become a skill for Melissa in her adult life. Melissa would travel to Belgium with her mother, and visit her grandmother there as well. But after her grandmother's passing, the trips to Belgium grew fewer and fewer, and her family in Belgium saw her less and less. During one of her trips, Melissa explained how her mom went to an all-boys school in Belgium and learned how to be just as tough as the other boys. Melissa was a lot like her parents, but also had her own hobbies and personality. She liked running, and she would participate in marathons in various parts of the world. She liked photography, and she liked blogging about her travels all over the world as well. Melissa was very smart and persistent in school. When she was faced with a task and failed, she always found a way to try again. She never really got upset when life handed her lemons, so she always saw it as another challenge to find a solution. And she was always happy to do so. She never really got down about challenges in her life, and she was always able to lift other people up around her. When Melissa was done with her primary and secondary schooling in Thailand, she moved to the United States in 1995 to attend Amherst College with the aspiration to become a surgeon. While living in Massachusetts, attending Amherst, she made two very close friends. I would consider these her best friends. And one of the friends had a family in Massachusetts that would look after Melissa. They were considered her surrogate family and stepped in to help her out while keeping in close contact with her family in Thailand. In 1999, Melissa graduated from Amherst with a degree in neuroscience and quickly headed off to her next adventure. I was not familiar with the medical school pathway before this episode, and I had to do some research on how one goes about getting a medical license. I'm going to briefly explain the steps so that you understand what these terms mean. So you start out medical school for four years and graduate with a doctor of medicine degree. After medical school, you'll need to get some experience and training in the form of residency. Residencies are typically three years, and they're more focused on the specific medical field you want to study. After the residency is even more training, called a fellowship, and this can be a few years or more depending on whatever field you choose. It's usually after the fellowship that you can start taking exams to get licensed and or board certified. Some states uh, require a minimum of one year residency to get licensed, but I imagine that the field is competitive and the more training you have is better. So keep these terms in mind, medical school, then residency, then fellowship. This is why medical school takes forever. Melissa started medical school at Washington University in 2001 with the hopes of becoming a surgeon. While taking classes there, she fell in love with pediatrics in underprivileged countries, and she saw this as a way to make a difference in the world. Her family and friends were not surprised that she no longer wanted to be a surgeon because Melissa was selfless and gentle. She wasn't becoming a doctor for the money, but rather to help save lives in areas that don't have many resources. She was very considerate with people, and if one of her patients said a word incorrectly, rather than correct them, she would also say the word incorrectly so the patient didn't feel uncomfortable. Melissa transferred to Stanford Medical School, where she received a Fogarty Ellison scholarship in 2005, and this allowed her to travel to Botswana for research. She spent a year in Botswana with some of the world's sickest children affected by HIV and AIDS. Her time there greatly impacted her perspective of life, and she was planning to return to Botswana to continue research. She graduated from Stanford in 2007, and she moved on to her next adventure. She transferred to Washington, D.C. to start her first-year surgery residency until she was able to find something closer to what she wanted to do. In 2008, she was able to transfer to Pennsylvania for her remaining three years in pediatrics residency at Children's Hospital, where she finished her residency in 2011. After her residency, she continued to work for the Children's Hospital, completing her fellowship in infectious diseases, and pursuing a master's degree in clinical epidemiology at the Pearlman School of Medicine. Fellowships require long work shifts, so living close to the hospital you work at is ideal. She was just a four-minute walk away from where she worked and lived in an affluent area in Pennsylvania in a moderately sized townhouse with her dog Pooch. Because Melissa's schedule was understandably chaotic, she had a scheduled dog walker who would use the lockbox outside to enter the house and walk Pooch during the day when Melissa was at work. On January 21st, 2013, Melissa called a pest control company and scheduled an appointment for her townhouse. She noticed that there were mice in her basement and she wanted an exterminator to spray foam in the areas where the mice were getting in. The pest control company said they would get her in contact with a contracted worker who can help her out. She got a call from the exterminator who parked down the street from her house. Since there was no parking on her street, these roads were very narrow, so there's no way that you can park a car there. You could probably go down the street with a car, but parking is not an option. So we parked down the street around the corner, and then she went out there to go meet him. 45 minutes later, the exterminator left and drove away in his silver Ford pickup. The dog walker arrived 15 minutes later, as usual, to walk Pooch and entered the house using the key from the lockbox. She immediately noticed the smell of smoke, and Pooch was visibly distraught. She called the fire department to let them know that there was a fire inside the house, and went to look for the dog and see where the fire was coming. As she went through the kitchen, the smoke got thicker, and as she entered the basement, she was able to see the charred and smoldering body of Melissa lying on the floor. It was a miracle that the fire didn't spread, since the basement was filled with highly flammable paint, And also dry paper. With the dog walker waiting outside with Pooch, the first responders entered the house and used water from the kitchen sink to extinguish the fire on Melissa's body. There was no visible signs of life, and detectives were called to the scene. When arriving, the detectives noticed that Melissa had her hands and feet bound with a leather strap. Paper taken from the kitchen and a liquid accelerant were used to start the fire on her body. The house was not ransacked and it didn't seem like anything was taken or missing. Melissa's body was taken to a medical examiner where the cause of death was ruled as strangulation and it was noticed that 50% of her body was burned. The straps used to bind her hands and feet were considered horse riding equipment, a hobby that her father was passionate about. There were no signs of sexual assault, and the crime seemed puzzling to detectives. What was the motive for this crime if it wasn't sexual? Why would they burn her body? How did they even get into her house? Detectives questioned nearby areas to see if anyone had surveillance, and they got really lucky when one of the cafes down the street and the hospital that Melissa worked at had security cameras working that day. From the footage, detectives notice the camera at the cafe pick up Melissa walking alone and then walking back again with a man following behind her. 45 minutes later, the man walks by alone, and this time with his jacket off and draped over his arm. This was January 13th, 2013, and as I'm recording this, it's January 13th, 2020. The weather in the area that Melissa lived in today was anywhere in the 40s to 50s, according to this week's weather. It's cold, but you could walk without a jacket. What was weird was that he was wearing gloves. Why be too hot for a coat, but keep your gloves on? It just kind of seemed odd to me that he would have his coat draped over his arm and have his gloves on. It just kind of seemed like, looking back on it, maybe he was hiding something. Detectives were able to get a time frame from when the dog walker called 911 and look back on the video surveillance to find this unknown man on a camera walking to and from her townhome. So this was most likely their guy. In the video from her work, the recording shows him leaving in a silver Ford pickup and circling the block a few times before leaving the area. Police were not able to get the license plate on the truck, so they needed to use another way of identifying this guy. I'm not too familiar with this technology, but police were able to take the footage from the man, map his face digitally from the footage, and then compare it with driver's license photos in the DMV database. I think this technology is really cool and kind of scary at the same time that they can map your face from a still image in footage. Police were able to get a list of people and then narrowed it down to see if anyone on that list had a silver Ford pickup. While this was happening, police were also searching Melissa's phone records to see if they could identify any of the phone numbers, but this process does take time. Detectives got in touch with three of Melissa's friends and asked them to check the house to see if anything was missing or unusual. The three friends went in and did not notice a robbery or that anything was moved from its original spot. The friends left the house visibly upset and crying. The press was all over this, thinking that maybe one of them could have done it. But this is actually not true, and they were really close friends with her. All of the pieces of a suspect started forming a picture of a man living close by and working as an exterminator. There was finally a name to a face, and that name was Jason Smith. I can't think of a more basic American name than this. It seems like the first name that comes to mind when you want to give a fake name and can't think of something original. Police records show that Melissa had received a call from Jason. The pest control company confirmed that he was subcontracted to Melissa's address. And his driver's license photo matched the person seen on camera. According to Jason's records, he only had arrests involving the use of drugs and alcohol. He had a DUI and a few public disturbance arrests that were nonviolent, and his rap sheet wasn't long at all. There wasn't anything on his record that would point to a violent crime. Police obtained a search warrant and formed a fugitive strike force to arrest him in Leventon, Pennsylvania. Jason lived with his girlfriend, her parents, and Jason's kids when the strike force came in with guns blazing and ordered everyone to the ground. I'm going to get a little critical here because I'm very against this use of force when it comes to arrests. First off, Jason does not own the home, so I think it's unethical to have a strike force enter a home of someone unknowingly harboring a criminal especially since they did not release the identity of their suspect to the public. Second, Jason doesn't have a violent police record up until now, so this amount of force seems a little hardcore for somebody who has a DUI record and nothing else. Third, there are children in the house, and I think anyone would have known that by canvassing the house outside and seeing kids' toys. I feel like a strike force was not necessary. I think that they could have knocked on the door and Jason would have come to the front door and they would have arrested him right there. I don't think they needed to kick down the door. I don't think that they needed to come in with guns, but police make their decisions for various reasons and I've never been in law enforcement, so I can't really say that this was a bad decision to make. I just think that it's very risky to make and a lot of people could get hurt in this way. So police entered the house and they shot the family's 8-year-old boxer while terrifying everyone in the house, including the children, and ultimately arresting Jason. While being arrested, Jason told a detective that, quote, she was alive when I left her home. It's really interesting for someone to say that right off the bat with no context to the crime they're being accused of. I'm assuming they're going to say he's being arrested for the murder of Melissa Catanuti, but if he had nothing to do with her murder, I'm sure the first response would not be, she was alive when I left her home. Jason was not violent, and he did not resist arrest when they arrested him. Detectives take Jason to the police station along with his girlfriend and their kids for questioning. After interrogating him for five hours and showing him pictures of Melissa's charred body, Jason finally confessed to how and why he murdered Melissa. His confession was not recorded, but a written and signed confession statement was made. He says that Melissa's dog Pooch was getting in the way and was becoming a problem for him to do his work. Melissa also wanted him to spray foam to keep the mice from getting into the basement, and Jason disagreed. Jason had made a comment critiquing the contents in the basement. Maybe he was saying that, the reason that the mice were getting in was because she had paper in there and the mice like to make their nests with paper. Melissa told Jason that he wasn't doing a good job and that he shouldn't be an exterminator. Jason was trying to leave and trying to pass Melissa, but she stood in the doorway and blocked Jason while continuing to belittle him. Jason grabbed Melissa by her throat and he started choking her to the ground. Jason recalls how she begged him to stop and that she would do anything detectives asked jason how he would feel if someone did this to his own little girl and that's when he broke down crying jason admitted to murdering melissa because he snapped out of anger and attacked her he tied her up with the straps he found in the basement once he realized that she was dead he freaked out and attempted to burn the body to get rid of evidence he left the house and he got into his truck He drove around the block a few times to see if there was any smoke coming out of the house and then left to his next job when it seemed like no alarms were raised. It must have been only minutes after Jason left that the dog walker showed up to the house and found Melissa's body still on fire. Jason was charged with five counts, which were murder, arson, risking a catastrophe, abuse of a corpse, and a weapons charge. He was 37 at the time of his arrest. I want to take a moment to talk a little bit about Jason's upbringing because I don't see any major red flags in his past. Jason and his brother were raised by their mother and her girlfriend. They lived in the house with two other boys, which were the sons of their mother's girlfriend. They lived with 14 cats and eight dogs. I can't imagine a household with that many people and animals under one roof, and I'm hoping that most of these cats were outside because I have a hard time cleaning up after two cats at my home, so I can't imagine how they did it with 14 cats and 8 dogs. Jason seemed to have anger issues at an early age, and on several occasions he would light fires. I don't think this was anything more unusual than a young boy playing with fire, because he never had a record including arson. Jason's brother Elliot claims that their household income was so limited that the boys would steal groceries, but their mom later denies that she would ever let the boys steal. Their mom was strict with them, as I imagine any mom is in a house with four young boys, but she didn't physically punish them. She never raised a hand to them. It seemed like Jason was close with his mom and relied on her since he never really moved out until later on in life. His family doesn't paint a good picture of Jason, and they say that he was kind of a moocher he was rude to women and kind of put them off a little bit, and that he would get angry very easily. He wouldn't ever get violent, but he would go from like 0 to 11 instantly. He didn't have anything higher than a high school education, and he worked mainly low-skilled jobs. But I don't think this makes someone a loser. Jason was a loser because he racked up a $1,000 bill by calling sex hotlines on his brother's phone while living with him and never paid his brother back. He was a loser because he abused drugs and alcohol, eventually getting a DUI, and arrested for being stupid in public after drinking too much. Although he may not be a likable person, family and friends never saw a violent side to Jason's anger. People closest to him trusted him and said that he was great with his kids and spent a lot of time with them outside playing. No one around Jason noticed anything unusual or any odd behavior after he murdered Melissa, and it seemed like he carried on normally. I want to get into my personal take of why I think Jason really murdered Melissa and how it all went down. I think that when Jason met Melissa, he was attracted to her because she was a really pretty girl. I don't think he made a pass at her, but maybe after finding out where she lived and that she was a doctor, he felt intimidated by her status. She may have been a little demanding with what she wanted done to the house because she had a dog. She may not have wanted poison placed in the basement because her dog could get into it and get poisoned. She would rather for Jason to seal up the areas where the mice were getting in. Pooch was a small dog, so when Jason claims the dog was getting in the way, Pooch was probably sniffing him and just being overly affectionate while he was trying to do his work. Jason may have made a comment to Melissa about her dog that changed the tone of the conversation between them. And I'm going to assume that Jason was not good when it came to dealing with people who were very particular. And to be honest, I'm not good at it either. So I can understand how somebody may get frustrated if somebody's very particular about something and they want you to do something a certain way and that you can get kind of frustrated with that. Melissa's comment about Jason being incompetent at his job could have been related to his social skills and how he was getting an attitude with her. I said that Jason was probably attracted to Melissa and I say this because of the sex hotline calls he had made and his family also said that he was kind of disrespectful towards women. I don't think that this crime is sexual by any means, but I think that in the back of his mind, Jason thought that he could have a shot with Melissa. I think that when Melissa started criticizing him, he was enraged that this beautiful woman thought that he was rude and that her being a doctor made him feel like she saw herself as better than him. It could have been that Melissa may have been mean to him because everyone has their bad days. Maybe she was having a crap day and was raising her voice, but based on people working with Melissa in tough situations, they still found her helpful and kind. I don't think that Melissa lost it on Jason, but it can't be ruled out that maybe she just had an attitude with him, and that's what got him upset and angry. I think the more likely story is that Jason's ego was extremely fragile, and a woman asserting her dominance was enough to break his ego and set him off. I don't know why Jason found it necessary to tie her hands and feet after he strangled her. Maybe he thought she wasn't dead, but then why set her body on fire? It's such a horrible way to kill someone if you aren't sure that they're dead. He set her body on fire to hide evidence, but this ultimately led to the discovery of her body even sooner. He didn't try to conceal her body, but made it really noticeable. It's obvious that Jason didn't know what he was doing and he was panicked. At the court hearing, the two detectives working on the case, Detective Edward Tolliver and Detective Henry Glenn, testified on Jason's confessions. One of the detectives was present when he made the comment about her still being alive when he left the home, and the other detective was present during the interrogation confession. In a desperate attempt, Jason claimed that he falsely confessed and that he was roughed up by detectives to confess. He claims that the detectives slammed his head on the ground and he thought that he could get away with this claim since the interrogation was not recorded. He also said that he was distressed because they were keeping his kids and girlfriend and that he just wanted it to be over. He also said that he was mentally incompetent to confess because he had intellectual disabilities. I think there's a difference between intellectual disabilities and being dumb like Jason For example, when he was talking to his girlfriend in jail on the phone, he forgot that the call was being recorded, and they were both joking about how he planned to fake a mental disability to claim that he falsely confessed and was coerced. In court, the recordings of that phone call to his girlfriend was replayed, and the defense team was dumbfounded. I think that they thought, what the hell was this guy thinking? Why would he say his plan over the phone? But... I think that at this point, Jason's own defense team had given up on him because he was such a loose cannon. A jury of six women and six men found Jason guilty of the five charges against him. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, and his convictions were imposed to be served consecutively. In the last episode, I said concurrently, and that was incorrect. I meant consecutively. And in this case as well, his sentences were kind of stacked on top of each other. So when one sentence was served, the other one would start. Melissa's surrogate family and friends attended the hearing and were relieved when the verdict was read. They made impact statements from both themselves and for Melissa's family in Thailand. Her parents were not able to attend because their health declined after her death and they were not well enough to travel the long distance. Melissa's friends from Amherst College made a Melissa Cadenuti Basilier 1999 Memorial Scholarship to help other aspiring students in the science and medical field. The Basilier name is from her mother, so that's why they put that in there as well. I'm not sure what her official name was on her birth certificate, but I think they wanted to show that she was both her father and her mother's daughter. Melissa's loss was felt by everyone who knew her, And the most common thing that people said about her murder was that her death was a loss to the world. Jason not only murdered a daughter, a friend, a sister, but he also murdered the person who would have saved thousands of lives. Who knows, she could have been important in the discovery of the cure for AIDS, so it's really hard to think of what she could have accomplished given that she was such a hardworking person working in that field. Jason has tried to appeal his convictions, but he's exhausted almost all of them. I think he's down to his last one, and that one isn't looking great. The Pennsylvania Post-Conviction Relief Act allows defendants to challenge their conviction, and Jason tried to make a what he thought was valid claim for this relief act, but his own lawyer filed a Finley no-merit letter, and that says that he has no credible claim to be eligible for the PCRA. Not only are his appeals almost exhausted, but he doesn't have the support of his own lawyers. So that's the life and murder of Melissa Catanuti. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode. I appreciate you listening. And again, if you want to leave a review, you can do so on Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm also working on getting onto Stitcher and Apple Podcasts, but I'm still in the review process, so to be continued. Thank <smart noise> you.